have always loved stories. Always been easily drawn in. As a kid, I had to be careful what I read or I watched. And yes, they can agree with that. Because I was all in. I was a literature major in college. You call that suspension of disbelief. Right? I was all in the stories. On the ride with the characters, whatever happened to them, I was in it. If I was reading a series, you know, books one through five, and I finished book three and book four hadn't even been published yet, it was like physical pain waiting for the next book. What will happen to the characters? I've traveled places I've never been. I've met people I've never known through stories. I have wept with a sense of grief at the death of a beloved character. I see nods and people are mentioning characters, right? Or at the end of a story that I found really engrossing, a novel, I have literally felt bereft because it's over and I'm not going to be spending time with those characters anymore. I've thrown a book across the room because it disturbed me so much. That was high school. I really have many times learned I've learned something about how other people might feel about how I might feel myself put into words that I've never thought of before. I've reflected at times on my life in a new way because of stories. Not everybody gets so drawn in, of course. Not everybody's so emotive as I am. But no matter your personality, stories have power. They have power to shape who we are and reflect who we are. Our common narratives are as important as our personal ones. I think in a profound way that's the fight that's going on in our country right now. Definitely. Who has control over the common narrative? Who says what's included and excluded? in the common narrative. Who's the narrator that gets to write the commentary on our shared narrative? The stories that are told shape who we are and they reflect who we are. This is powerful stuff. These words, these stories. Well, that's why I love and become kind of easily overwhelmed when I get the rare chance to preach. I don't preach much at all these days uh, since my ministry is outside the local church. But when I get to preach and what's in the lectionary is something from Exodus. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Talk about story. This is the narrative. Capital T, capital N. The narrative at the absolute center of Judaism. And the foundation story of Christianity, too. I love entering the Exodus story. And I can get overwhelmed because it's so hard to deal with just 11 verses. That's what we have this morning, 11 verses. Just a tiny portion of this long, complex narrative, the narrative. So not surprisingly, we're going to flow a little backwards and forwards in the larger narrative as we look at this piece of it today, this 
uh, piece where we're kind of a fly on the wall observing this conversation between God and Moses. So first, the context. God and Moses are having a conversation on Mount Sinai. If you were here last week, or if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, then you might know what happened shortly before today's reading. Moses has already been on the mountain for 40 days and nights, receiving the holy law that was going to guide and define the people of Israel. So this includes the so-called Ten Commandments, but also so much more. Now, when Moses is up there, the people are where? At the bottom. And as Pastor John spoke about last week, they get anxious. And they talk Moses' brother Aaron, who's been functioning as something of a priest among them, to create a gold statue for them to worship. Because they convince themselves that Moses is never coming down and that God has forsaken them after all. Aaron complies, makes the calf, the people worship. God and Moses flip out. God is literally going to just obliterate all of them and start over with Moses. Moses talks God down, but then, I kind of forgot some of these details. He executes some pretty mean judgment himself. We all probably know he smashes the stone tablets. He burns the statue. I just got to mention this one little detail because as a story detail, it's so fabulous. He burns the statue and mixes the gold dust with water and makes him drink it. <laughs> right? And then he authorizes the murder of thousands of Israelites. He authorizes the murder. Some Israelites, he authorizes them, they go out and slaughter their kinfolk. That's what happens proceeding today. And today he's gone back up the mountain to figure out what to do. Moses and God are kind of catching their breath on the mountain and making plans for the future with the bitter taste of this, of what has just happened in their mouths. It's time to leave this place, God tells Moses, just before today's reading. Take the people you brought out of Egypt, go on to the land of milk and honey that I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to clear the way, I'll send an angel to guide you. That doesn't sound too bad. Kind of sounds like they got a pass, they're going to get to go to the land that's been promised. But then God adds, I will not go up among you. Or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God's trying to figure out what to do. God is attempting to fulfill, this is an ages-old promise, this promise of the land, right? This is the promise given to Abraham and Sarah way back. This is a generations-old promise. And God says, I'll be faithful to that. The land will be made available. The people will be guided. God will assure their victory over others. But I will not go up among you. And with that, the promise of the land and the victory tastes like ash in their mouths. They cry out. You remember learning about the shape, the basic shape of a story in school? 
was like fourth grade you learn introduction, building action, conflict, climax, right? It's shaped like a mountain. We're at the climax on the mountain, literally. This whole section, this section of Exodus with the golden calf and the fallout, this is the climax of this Exodus story. This is when Gabe, our son, would leave the room. When it gets intense at the climax and you really don't know, will they or won't they? Will God or won't God? Gabe has inherited my all-in energy. And he suddenly has to go to the bathroom and leaves the room. That's where we are this morning, that climax. It doesn't look good. The narrative hinges here. Dennis Olson is an Old Testament professor at Princeton, and he writes, the whole point of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt, the whole point of doing that, was to make it possible that God would be close and near living with us in the midst the whole point was for God to be living in their midst. The whole narrative leads here. The whole narrative, baby Moses saved in the water. The burning bush, God summoning Moses to go. The prophecy and confrontation with Pharaoh over and over again. Ten, ten plagues. And that's just to get them out of Egypt. The Red Sea. The appearance of a pillar of cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night to guide them through the desert. They're in the desert. Water supplied from rocks. Manna and quail falling from heaven to feed them. All leading to this point, leading to a new people, the creation of a new and different nation. That's the point. Not like the nations around them sacrificing in blood and praying to gods that are separate and unreliable, not like the nations around them, with the rich exploiting and oppressing the poor and the religious systems participating in that oppression, not like the lands around them. All this toil and strain and miracle working is creating a new people, and what defines them is God with them, literally in their midst, so that their way of being together, their way of being community, will be completely shaped and guided by God's own self, God's being, God's nature. That's why Moses was on the mountain, receiving the instructions that would make this possible. When we read in Exodus the, the really detailed descriptions of creating the tabernacle with you measure this and you measure that and they're this far apart, our eyes glaze over. But those instructions were to build a tabernacle that would move with them as they traveled. It was going to go with them and move in the tabernacle. God, it's a literal tabernacle that travels with them and God is going to be The whole narrative is leading to that. That's the whole point of getting the people out of Egypt to make them a unique people, dwelling with God, God literally in their midst. That's the vision. That's what they've been building toward. The people at this point in the story, they've already said yes. They've already made covenant with God. And God certainly has said yes to the new covenant. 
a new vision, a new path, a new way of being community together. And the people blew it. They had Aaron make that lifeless, stupid cow. And they bowed down to it instead. The reaction then that God makes isn't about God's pride. When God says, I'm going to wipe them out and start again, I don't think it's about being offended. I think it's about being heartbroken. Have you ever been betrayed by someone? By someone that you said yes to? Someone you joined yourself to in one way or another? Have you ever committed to a cause or a person with your wholehearted yes, only to have them change their mind? Turn their back? Give their yes to someone else? Have you ever tried to find a way through the heartbreak with the one who broke your heart? That's what God's trying to figure out. God and Moses together are trying to find a way through the heartbreak with the people, <laughs> with the people that broke God's heart. I already mentioned there is some very harsh punishment, but the people as a whole, when we finally get to the 11 verses for today, the people as a whole are still here at the foot of the holy mountain. They're still the descendants of Abraham, the inheritors of the promise. They have repented to the best of their ability, and they've cried out for God not to leave them. So God is trying to figure out what to do. God says, I'm willing to keep the shape of the promise, the land, the ownership, but honestly, not much more than that. Not with these people. Look at everything I've done for them. Not with these people. The ones who have betrayed and broken God's heart, they don't seem up to the invitation of being the people with God in their very midst. That's why God says to Moses, Take the people you brought out of Egypt and go. You hear that subtle language? Take the people you brought out of Egypt and go. Right? And Moses, in response, gives God a little history lesson. To Moses' credit, he doesn't go all the way back to the burning bush like I have, but he could have. He could have said, um, let's remember, I was minding my own business, and you came to me. You came to me with this crazy plan of setting free this ragged group of slaves. These are not my people. These are your people. He does says that gently. Moses is gentle in this. Moses says, these are your people still. And then Moses reminds God of the most important part of the promise. The most important part is not the land. It's not the secure borders, nor the economic prosperity, but the God with us part of the promise. An angel is not enough, Moses says. 
You somewhere behind or before or beside is not enough. The vision that was cast, the new thing being created, Moses reminds God, is the God with us. In this way, Moses reminds God, you heard it read, we shall be distinct from every people on the face of the earth. If you're not going to go with us, don't bother sending us. We can't be your people without your presence. Moses insists, that's where we are, right here at the climax of the story. Will God or won't God? It's God's own nature that casts the vision of a different way of being. It's God's nature that inspires the followers not to be like the nations around them, with the rich getting richer and the poor held in poverty. The nation of Israel is shaped instead around this profoundly equitable and just vision of all people belonging to each other. The law in the book of Exodus is largely about ways of living that help people focus on God so that they can live in peace and equity in their homes and their community. There are still people of more and less financial means, of more and less capacity for work and productivity, but everyone is responsible for the well-being of everyone else. Exploitation and vengeance are forbidden by law. Overuse and exploitation of the land is forbidden by law. Sabbath rest for all is law. There's no separate civil law. You see what I'm describing? This nation, this way of being together, of going about their business, is completely defined and shaped by the nature of God. And God says, if you're going to be my people, this is what it looks like. You are responsible for each other. All of you are responsible for each other because that's who God is. In this way, Moses says, we shall be distinct from every people on the face of the earth. That law, of course, is context-bound, right? They're slaves in the law, mentioned in the law. And women are still property in the law. So it is not perfect. But abuse and exploitation and vengeance are always forbidden. Profiting from another's misfortune and sorrow is forbidden. So despite the limitations of the time and place in which it was written, the law in Exodus is this incredible vision and promise of shared life made possible because this is who God is. If you've never read the law in the book of Exodus, I'm encouraging you to read it. When we talk about justice and we talk about caring for one another, folks, this is what it's based in. We didn't come up with that. This is ancient and it's shaped around what this holy text says is the nature of God, is the nature of the one who created us, created us to be this type of community. So will God or won't God in this moment, in the story, stay with them? God says, I will. Moses persuades God to stay faithful to the whole promise, and it actually happens over and over again in the narrative. 
that Moses speaks on behalf of the people and says, oh, give us, really, really, this time, one more try. One more try, God. Come on, stay faithful to the promise. Give the people one more try. It's this grand experiment. I will be their God. They will be my people. Another image that comes up over and over again in the narrative is I will give them hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. And this law, this law of equity, of belonging to one another, I will write on their hearts. All of this intimate language, God in their midst, and the law, the nature of God in people. Time and time in the narrative, as again in these 11 verses, God relents and says, okay, I will keep offering to be their God. And the story continues. The people continue. They try to follow this example of God, of the one in their midst, the one of belonging to one another. They try, and they fail. And they try, and they kind of succeed. And they try, and they fall short, and they miss the mark, and they get it right. And they try again, and they forget, and they're reminded, and they try again, and they see, and they hear, and they try some more, and they close their hearts, and they open their hearts, they try and fail, and we close our hearts, and we open our hearts, and we try, and we fail, and we succeed, and we forget. We try to catch this vision, this vision of a shared life that may be possible still yet, because friends, we are the ongoing narrative. We are this story. This is our story. This story shapes us profoundly, and hopefully, in good ways, it reflects us. This story asserts that God's presence is made known in the community that seeks to be God's presence with each other. If you want to know about God's nature, be God's community. It's this sort of mysterious, like, cycle. If you want to know who God is, you got to live like God's people, and when you're living like God's people, you come to know something of who God is. I think that what would Jesus do kind of slogan that can be kind of cheesy or a little manipulative, but I think its best intention is this, is this idea of God with us intimately with us, shaping our choices on a daily basis. God with us isn't about fancy vestments or big buildings. It's not about creeds or candles. God with us is a verb. God is our loving, our learning, our advocating, our truth-telling, our justice-making. God known in the beloved community that is radically and centrally committed to shared, equitable life. Most of those who come to Calvary, who stay at Calvary, I think believe this. I know a lot of you, and I think that a lot of folks that stay at Calvary, that come repeatedly to Calvary, do locate themselves in this story, this ethic this God with us, we belong to each other, all others. I think it is the grounding narrative of Calvary where people try to be transparent and generous and honest. But not everyone shares this vision. 
in our world, in our country, in our community, not everyone has this ethic or thinks that our shared narratives have any place in the present moment. Not all people understand themselves to be part of this story. In our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, not everyone wants to belong to each other. Or even thinks it's possible. But if it's my ethic, if this is my foundational story, then it's got to be my ethic wherever I am. Not just when I'm here, surrounded by people I trust share this with me. It's got to be my central story wherever I am. And I think it can get really challenging. Uh, at work a couple weeks ago, I came into some office space and one of my coworkers was reading the novel The Help. So I just asked her what she thinks of it. And she said, it's good, but it makes me mad. She's African American. She said, I'm having a hard time reading it, actually, because I'm so angry when I read it. And I was telling her about, um, I said, I feel like it takes courage to read some of the stories of our shared narrative, right? It takes courage to read them. And somebody had given me um, the novel The Underground Railroad at Christmas time. And I didn't read it till the summer because it takes courage to open yourself to that part of the story. So we were just talking about that. And another coworker, who's a bit younger than I am and is also Caucasian, spoke up, and I can't remember, I can't remember what she said that kind of drew her into this interaction. Maybe it was something like, I don't know why people read those things. What's the point? And the two of them turned toward each other and began to have an incredibly heated conversation about race in America. Uh, they were talking over top of one another. I kept thinking I wanted to interject and I couldn't even figure out where to like, get my foot in. That's how fast and furious the pace of their conversation was. But I felt a sense of responsibility as another Caucasian person in the conversation to validate the importance of knowing our shared narrative. I wouldn't have put it in this words at the time, but looking back on it, what I was hearing from the young Caucasian woman was, that's the past and it's over and I think people should stop talking about it. It's an excuse. Nobody gave me a hand up. I worked hard for what I have. My family hasn't had it easy. That narrative back there doesn't matter anymore. Why do we keep talking about this? So I spoke up once about redlining, about a little portion of the narrative. And then I backed back out because really the energy was between the two of them. But 
after that driving home, I was really, she's my office mate, by the way. She's my office mate. And um, it's really challenging for me to figure out what the ethic of love and belonging to one another looks like in a relationship with someone who often talks about her narrative as we take care of our own. We take, my family takes care of my family because we've had to and nobody gave us a hand up. I was trying on the way home to replace some of what she was saying to try to hear what is behind it. And I'm not sure I've really gotten much of any place. But preparing for today is what gave me kind of the insight about the fight around the narrative. That that's part of what was happening there. For some people, the narrative is about taking care of your own and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Like, we, we praise people in this country who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But that's a very individualized narrative and way of living. You have your story, I have mine. So for some, they just can't see that we're connected or they don't see value in that. They really will not acknowledge that that's just true, that we're connected. And then for others who have been victimized, well, why would you want to belong to each other or believe that it's possible to belong each to the other? No one will actually share when it comes down to it. No one will really invest in another's well-being as much as their own. I can understand skepticism and defensiveness and closing the gates. I mention this because this is really complex. It's really complex. And the Bible doesn't even pretend otherwise, right? They try, they fail, they try, they succeed, they try, they get it partially right, they try, they forget, they close their hearts, they open their hearts, they remember, they see, they hear, then they don't. This is not the shape of the narrative. It's like this, right? Trying to embody this ethic of belonging to one another is complex. And I confess I don't totally know what it looks like in all situations. I'm not sure what the most loving and just thing would have been for me in this scenario at work. And I'm not sure on this side of it what that totally looks like with either of the women involved in that conversation. But I'm trying. I talked to my husband about it. I'm telling you about it because it's an example of an interaction where this ethic kind of rubber hits the road and I'm not sure what it looks like. And if others can help me get clarity and courage around that, I'll take it, because I do believe there's choice over and over again. The Israelites chose the golden calf, the stupid golden calf, and then they chose repentance, and they chose trying again to follow the living God, 
And God chose to trust again and extend again, and the story goes on each day, in each community, each moment where we find ourselves. We will fail, or we'll not get it quite right, or we'll succeed, and then we'll get to choose again in another situation. But as individuals and families and Calvary, will we choose to continue to be shaped by and to reflect this story, the story of belonging to one another, the story of God in our midst completely shaping and guiding how we are with one another, the story that challenges us to keep opening our minds, to keep softening our hard hearts? Will we support and encourage one another through times of complexity and pain, insecurity and fear to keep trying. Keep seeking this new way of being, because guess what? It's still a new way of being. Choosing to belong to one another, having that be the ethic, is still radical. It's still not like the nations around us. It's still the new, different way. We are invited to follow it, to embody the love and honesty and self-care and other care and earth reverence that reflect God with us. May we over and over again as individuals and communities say yes. May we shape the narrative, may we shape the narrative toward justice and opportunity and peace for all people, all people. May we be faithful in this, faithful to one another, to the planet itself, and to the spirit that sustains this vision, the spirit that will go with us in our midst, the spirit that entrusts us profoundly to one another. Amen.